and welcome to or welcome back to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. What's going on, my man? Oh, it's always my favorite time when it's time to give the people what they want. All right. And before we get into today's episode, just a recap. The Scholar Clubhouse recap. What's popping in the clubhouse, John? Well, We've had 16 people, brand new Scholar members, sign up since the last podcast. We welcome them into the clubhouse. This is phenomenal. The community is getting stronger because of their addition. Lots of good dialogue going on. But specifically, Steve, what has caught your eye? You know, a couple different things. First off, we had an interesting dialogue on what to do with the inner voice in your head that's yelling at you to stop or slow down or all oh god that yeah that was stuff. awesome yeah Jeez. yeah so a nice discussion there and then john one that i know got you fired up in the science of running section there was this nice back and forth and debate which you participated in on a recent study looking at what role do our arms play? And we had some nice discussion with coaches, you know, going back and forth on like, okay, what does this tell us? What does it not tell us? And all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, it just a lot of exciting things happening on. And then plus two, the most exciting thing is just athlete or coaches being able to troubleshoot with other coaches in their space in real time. We had one coach who was struggling, uh, an athlete was struggling with pre-race anxiety. Um, and she's, you know, he was like, my athlete, she's very anxious before a race. There's this burden. And there's a lot of good back and forth as well as offline dialogue that uh, was had, you know, kind of in the direct message chat between a couple, the coach and a couple other coaches providing their perspective and input. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. Like, honestly, you know, just... If you haven't, if you've been on the fence, sign up, give it a shot. If it's just for the clubhouse only, but also to you get hundreds and hundreds of courses and hours of Steve and I, you know, nerding out about very specific topics in the history, the practice, the science of distance running training. Yes. And I just should announce that we just released our new course on marathon training. Oh, yes. Which, Good time know, to study up before the fall marathon season that's, that's right that's what we're hitting why are we releasing it in kind of the spring or summer because we know you're about to get ready to start that marathon training program or coaching athletes for the fall marathon season so we're gonna prep you we're gonna get you ready we go deep into a variety of marathon training programs and then guess what i break down the full Two full marathon buildups for one of the world-class marathoners that I coach. I Dude, just go. I mean, that's pure gold. You, you know, you get the one-time, you know, let's run dubbed best marathon coach in America, ta- taking you through step-by-step step his marathoners buildup. <laughs> the one, that was long ago, but hey. <laughs> that, you know, and my, you go through hot and cold streaks, but. It's true. Um, it's true. But you get to see what it is. So what is it? Join the Running Scholar Program. So with that being said, we're going to dive into today's topic, developing performance flexibility, how to prepare adaptive athletes to deliver when it counts. And you know, John, this, this is a topic we've talked about offline a lot. And this is why we brought it online, as we often do. We kind of mull things over. In our 20 to 30 minutes before we we record this podcast so that we kind of know what we're doing. And um, this is one that's come up many times. And I think to set the stage, we often think that athletes need to be all in, that they need to be specialized, focused, have running be their main thing, if not only thing. And even if we don't quite believe that, we often push athletes towards that, right? Where we say, 
you gotta make this has to matter you gotta be motivated like this is it and in the high school level it's often it's often easy to convince or easier to convince someone that running is the most important thing in their day or one of if not the only most important things in their day and what happens is we take these athletes and we take them down this narrow path, which can lead to great things because you're motivated and dedicated and it matters and you care and all that stuff. But on the flip side, it makes you fragile. Because if running is the only thing, if running is the main thing with very little outside of it in terms of your identity, your sense of self, the things that you enjoy, your hobbies, whatever have you, it puts you where eventually you 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 are so narrow that you almost have to do it or need to do it instead of want to do it. And once we make that transition to have to and need to, bad things start to happen because you become incredibly fragile. Because uh, if you get injured, if you lose a race, whatever have you, it's like the world crushing down on you not only because you lost, but it makes it seem like I'm a loser. I have no sense of competence or can't make progress or the one area where I kind of define myself isn't going well. So you feel a bit, a bit lost. And it really, it really is a major problem. So what we're going to talk about a little bit is that, but also how to develop that flexibility, which doesn't mean you don't care it doesn't mean that you're not motivated it doesn't mean that you you know running isn't important but it gives you that wiggle room that space so that if running is going bad or you're going through a tough time you're not crushed and therefore you can bounce back therefore you can handle challenges because you can see it as something to overcome and not something to be afraid of and i think that fear is fostered in uh, our misunderstanding of say running physiology and how improvement actually happens, right? You know, I, like I've related to many a times, I was exposed to early on in my coaching career, this chart of, you know, aerobic decay. And if you don't take one day off, your aerobic system starts to decay at this rate and three days means this and so on and so forth, right? And the reality is it's like, yeah, there's aerobic, you know, um, factors involved, but when we understand that two running is a skill of movement and the body has a very, is a complex ecosystem of interactions. And it's not just muscle contraction in terms of concentric contraction, but also eccentric as well as isometric, which in isometric contraction, right? There's no sliding of the filaments of myosin axon. It's static. So there's no ATP being used. Well, when you start to couple that with the reality of we have this fascial net and all that other stuff, then you start to see, okay, it's not just solely an aerobic development entity. But if you um, propagate that, if you champion that, if that's your only lens, a very rigid lens or linear lens that you look through, then it creates this fear of I need to run every day or else. And by creating that fear of having to habituate this activity on a daily basis otherwise you lose out right and you will be less than that create can start to create a very narrow world view because it starts to make it so a lot of your identity as an athlete is wedded to this identity as a runner and we see this time and time again that having a very flexible identity even quote-unquote liberal arts approach to your self-identity is really valuable because when things aren't going well in one area or you kind of lose the appetite for something in one area, you can shift and, you know, focus a little bit more on these other areas. And without that, if training becomes everything, if like, oh, I got to eat this, I got to drink this, I got to do this. And the reason for those behaviors is solely to augment and enhance the response of the body to a training activity you've kind of like, you know, uh, lost sight of the um, forest for the trees. And that's really important as coaches. We, I think we need to safeguard against that because, yeah, it's all good and fun to have people run fast, but you can have people run fast in a myriad of ways. As Steve and I have 
shown time and time again, especially in the scholar program, there's a million ways to roam. And there's low mileage, high quality approaches. There's high mileage, low quality approaches. There's hybrid approaches. There's, you know, people who spend a lot of time cross training and very little time running. Like there's no one way. And I think the trap of linear logic, right? Because that's what the initiation and indoctrination to running can be is where we have this linear approach. If I do X numbers, one plus one is two. If I run, you know, 20 miles a week and I'm this good, if I run 40 miles a week, I'll be that much better and so on and so forth. The reality is though, as we know, it's one plus X equals Q to the N. <laughs> we don't know all the variables and how they interact, but we make up this really convenient linear story and then start to really freak out when things don't go according to our linear plan. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I think this danger occurs when we narrow in anything, right? When we get so narrow, and we do this intentionally because like this is the path that we're kind of told towards expertise or performing is like you go deeper, 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 deeper. You know, you learn one way to do it and you go deeper on that. You learn to, you know, put in the work. So you go, you double down, triple down, et cetera, on, on this pathway. You learn that, you know, your sense of self your identity is, you know, can be had in this thing that you're really good at. So you go deeper and deeper because initially you get rewarded for it, right? You're like, oh, there's that runner. Like, here's my accolades and all this stuff. Same in coaching. Oh, that coach, coach uses X, Y, or Z program. Like, they're really successful. They're known as this. Um, and the problem, because if you go all the way down, if you get narrower and narrower, you get locked in and you lose perspective. And you get constrained where you can't escape because like your identity is tied to that thing. So you become actually, you know, several years ago when I was I was coaching in college, I had this conversation with a high school coach who adopted who essentially was handed a a team with a particular program you know what i won't name the program for its sake but you know a, a training program style in high school and he came up to me he's like steve like there's some great things about this training program but man there's some things that i wish i could change and i was like well why don't you just change them and he's like man because like all the kids all the parents like everybody in the community essentially have been sold that this program is the greatest thing in the world. And this is why we're good. So if I change it, like I lose that, that, that value, you know, I lose that buy-in and I'm like, well, you, you know, you can take time and it'll take some, you know, convincing or rewiring or whatever. And he's like, yeah, but I can't take that a risk because we might step back. And if we step back, then it looks like I don't know what I'm doing, et cetera. And I got his dilemma. I mean, I'm not minimizing it, but it's it was interesting hearing this because, again, what happens, we got so narrow and locked in, like the program was intertwined with the success. We're successful because we do X, Y, and Z. And therefore, there's no space for innovating. There's no space for like changing because it's like this identity our team's identity is tied to doing this sort of training or this sort of thing and i think whether we apply that on a team standpoint or an individual standpoint with our athletes on tying our entire identity or self or whatever to this narrow view of running the result is the same is it can work out for a while but it makes you fragile it makes you locked in and when you have to pivot, you often have nowhere to go because you spent so much time like in, entangling yourself that you can't escape. I, and this is super common, right? I mean, it's interesting you, 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 know, you bring that up. It's like this fear of the unknown or the fear of kind of evolution. And that's, I mean, it, it's something that... Um, a lot of people, you know, we are hesitant towards uh, embracing because we we a known known is better than a unknown unknown, right? And so 
but the unknown is where all the juicy stuff is. That's where the exploration and evolution happens. And evolution doesn't necessarily mean progress. It just means change. And change can be good. Change can be bad. Change can, in the acute phase, you know, not be so awesome. But in the, you know, intermediate or delayed or long-term phase can be really awesome. And it's when you, the point of the scientific approach, I think, is not that it's all evidence-based. It's the fact that evidence colors your direction and spirit of action and behavior. And it's simply, you know, I remember this very early on in my uh, academic career. It's simply you just go with what is the the best evidence or the most um, convincing evidence supported by the most, you know, repeatable data, right? And if you had a worldview or if you had a line of logic that was contrarian to what the evidence in reality demonstrates, you drop that that worldview and you just go with the evidence. I mean, it's not not hard, but it is actually really hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because this comes back to the self-identity of am I wrong or is the information I had that colored my decision-making and behavior wrong? And you have to decouple and divorce the concept of the information or education you're exposed to might not have been the full story. And now you've come up to new information and evidence that says, hey, actually, here's the more enlightened way to think about it. And it's, it's not hard. I was telling someone the other day, like, life is the art of letting go. If you can let go of previously held notions, doctrines, you know, information that might not have been, um, that might not behoove you anymore, and move forward with the next best available um, alternative that is presented to you, you're going to be in really good sorts. But if you can't, you become a hoarder, right? And we know those people who hoard tend to be very um, static and tend to, you know, be very immobile. Like if you go to a hoarder's house even, right? You can't move around the house because there's all this junk in the way. And we need to have that space and flexibility to explore, to move. And also too, as people and athletes and coaches, develop chapters in our life that are different. Because if the chapter is just you know, Groundhog's Day, the same thing every day, the story doesn't move forward. And as athletes, you know, we have to have the story move forward for them in some way, shape or form. And I mean, Steve, how many times have you or I worked with an athlete who came to us after being coached by several really good, successful uh, programs or coaches? And all we did was just say, hey, you've really developed these areas, but you have not developed or even explored this area. So we're going to just do that. And we're going to just add that in. And then all of a sudden, boom, this big performance jump. Yeah, I call it filling the gaps. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's not difficult. I mean, you so many times with athletes, I just take, you know, because here's the thing that um, as coaches, we often get locked into our philosophy, right? And this is the way, this is the way, narrow, narrow, narrow. And when we do that, it limits our ability to kind of expand and fill those gaps. There are so many instances. In fact, it's the first thing I ever do when I work with a new athlete, especially on an elite level, is I ask for their training logs and their history. And the nice thing about coaching elites for a while is you name the coach, like I saw the training, right? Of pretty much, you know, anybody who's who's done good training because like I had a bunch of athletes who, you know, the, who would come to me on their second or third coach and I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, let's see what this coach did. They were all good. And what you're, you're doing is you're not saying, Oh, this coach was so wrong. Look at this. This was the wrong reason you're saying you're looking at it. You're like, yeah, this makes, this all makes pretty sense, much good sense. And then you're like, well, you know, but this coach, he didn't include this. There's a gap here. Let's do that gap. And that gap could be, you know, it could be sprinting. It could be no long, like sustained, steady work. It could be, you know, no hills. It could be no strength training. Like it's impossible to cover everything. Even I don't, you know, 
Um, so there's always a gap in, in the training. And my job was always pretty simple, which is, okay, let's keep what seems to be working well. We'll change what you don't think works well, and then we'll just kind of fill the gap. <laughs> and that's all, always your go-to number one, because if you fill the gap, you're applying a new stimulus, and you're likely going to see a little bit of improvement. And that's the whole point of like what you know what we're calling flexibility or performance flexibility here is the idea that you know even if you work with an athlete over the long term in the scholastic setting or post collegiate setting, is you can be flexible and pivot and identify where the most recent or global gap in their development is. You know, with athletes I coached at the post collegiate level for many years, you know, at first always with most people they have a fundamental lack of strength, right? And not just lack of, and that's lack of force application or speed, as we might call it, right? Because speed is just, you know, the illusion that uh, uh, that strength produces. So we tend to work on that because that's the biggest gap, right, for the development at that time. But then after, you know, periods of long, you know, strength and technique and power development, we might then pivot to what would be called more like aerobic or lactate threshold development and then all right we're going to up the miles or up the duration of something with you know razor thin recoveries right because now that's a gap we've shored up one but sure enough another one comes into play and it's having that hierarchy about the athlete population you work with about what's the most important foundational level it is really important right we are sold on this foundational level of general aerobic development and that does have matter and that matters and has import, but so does general strength development, right? So, and if you look at a lot of like these um, uh, Soviet texts, there's actually, you know, they say there's complement between the two, right? It depends on what direction you want to go with an athlete. If you want to build an athlete to become a power strength athlete, well, then the sequencing of events is going to be the strength work first and then the aerobic work. If you want to develop them in the other way to be a more robust, stronger endurance-based athlete, well, then on a given day, you'll do the endurance work first and then the strength work second. Why? It comes down simply to gene signaling, right? We've talked about before, mTOR, other gene signalings, but essentially, we tend to like think too macro, right? We think at the level of muscles and you know other metabolic substrates. But if we go to the DNA and gene expression level, what we do turns on and off genes in the DNA that creates these expressions for these hormones, for these remodeling of bone, remodeling and building of myosin, actin, you know, density, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to happen. So that's why sequencing matters a lot. And we're just getting a good understanding about that. But if all you think is like, all right, at this macro general cardiovascular pulmonary level or this very general macro um, soft tissue level, again, that's going to kind of stunt or limit as a coach what you're comfortable doing in the sequence you're comfortable doing. Because I can hear people like, oh, but you said you shouldn't lift on the same day you run. Well, you know, again, depends on the goal of the lifting. Is it general strength? Because we want general uh, improvement in our stability and um, force output and when we hit the ground and strike the ground, or is it because we are really trying to improve this quality or quantity of this asset called strength? And that's where the type of athlete you are influences the import and also sequence of the work you're going to do. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think it's pretty simple is no it's not it's simple but it's complex steven that's why i run a podcast about it i know but (laughs) it it is it's like simple it's like everything needs to be done it's just about timing and figuring out where to stick everything in and when to do that and the tough Um, part is we want a recipe that's like the back of the chocolate chip you know nestle that we just follow every time linear step by step and we get the same result and it doesn't happen unfortunately yeah you know it's and, and it's like this is where the the individuality of it comes out as like the flexible, adaptable athlete, not only psychologically can't narrow, but I think physiologically struggles when we narrow, which means like when we go too far in one direction and that's the only toolkit we have, right? 
Um, you you tend to see athletes who you know do well for a while, but then like don't have the toolkit to to improve after that. What do I mean by that? Is like as you get better, your limiting factor shifts. So if you shore up one end of the equation or one part of it, it shifts somewhere else. So, you know, if you develop aerobically for a while, great. Well, eventually that limiting factor shifts and you're going to have to develop somewhere else or the, the opposite side. And our job as coaches is essentially to constantly kind of be like, oh, okay, where's our limiting factors at? Oh, do we have the capacity? Do we have the skill set? Do we have the foundation to be able to work on this? Because it's not like you just jump from one thing to the other. It's you have to have the foundation in, in place to do the work, right? You have to be resilient enough to be able to handle some sort of volume. You have to be, um, you know, you have to have the biomechanical foundation or the mechanical foundation to do certain plyos or strength work or what have you. So you need to, that's why to me, the most important thing is always like setting the stage so that we can pivot to different directions if we need to. So that if I say, you know what, this person's speed is the limiting factor. Well, I can jump into that and do like increase the work in that area and be okay versus being like, well, we've never sprinted before. or We've never like done any of this work before. So good luck. Um, <laughs> you know, so that's that's what that's why I, th- I often think of it as like sometimes we're doing stuff that might help a little bit now, but gives me more roadmaps in the future. And I'll give you an example. Um, this is why I love including hill sprints for pretty much everybody, pretty much you know rear, year round. Why? Because it gives me the simplest way to pivot. If I say, you know what, hill sprints are good. But I've got to go on the track and do, we've got to have like do some hundreds in like whatever, 11, 12 seconds, depending on the guy. We've got to, we've got to like spend a period to do that. Well, if I just threw them on the track and did that, we're probably talking injuries and not having coordination. If they've been sprinting up hills for a while, although it's different, they're still used to max intensity sprinting right? Applying force to the ground in a specific way. And I can easily then translate that over to the track and be fine. You know, it's also why, I mean, it's no different than if you look on the endurance side, it's why you wouldn't go and you'd be like, oh man, we need some endurance. Like go run a 15 mile long run when their long run is six miles, right? You build up the capacity. So maybe you don't need to do 15, but if they've consistently done a 10 mile, 11 mile long run for a while, then you know, you know what, if we need to increase it over, you know, this season to 13, 14, 15, it's not a big deal because we've been doing 10 miles for a long time, right? So you've got to give yourself that room to be able to go in the direction that you need to when it comes time to go in that direction. And the thing about hill sprints specifically, right, is there's kind of like three main functions of the tissue in movement. You have energy conservation as one, you have power amplification, which is another, and then power attenuation or deceleration, right? So hill sprints, you know, along with jumping, acceleration work, more ballistic activities are power amplification. So what does that mean? The energy flow flows from the muscle, initiates the movement to the tendon right? To load the tendon, which then creates a reaction that moves the body. So think about it like hill sprints and or say block starts for sprinters are very similar. The body has this inertia it needs to overcome with the either starting from zero or now the incline of the hill. So then the muscle has to produce contraction, which loads the tendon to create the spring effect that then will then project that momentum in the body. Running, right? You know, cyclical running, is more of a metabolic economy activity where the body comes down from the air, it loads the tendon, and then the body projects again. As much as we, you know, want to think there's all this metabolic and energy energetic cost with running, if you load the tissues in the right way in cyclical running at a you know certain constant speed, 
then you don't have that much muscle influence with axis and myosin hand moving because it's more you know isometric in nature and that's more like say running walking and hopping it's why we've developed uh, and evolved the way we have to become very very efficient bipedal organisms because when you keep looking at the science of evolutionary biology time and time again here's what happens it says we stayed in business and the neanderthals didn't why well you know homo sapiens we only needed about because of our bipedal gait and the efficiency associated with it, 2,000 calories plus or minus a day. Back when calorie resources were very scarce. Neanderthals, more muscular, more stronger, more powerful, they needed about 5,000. So they went out of business and we didn't, right? Because they were about power amplification versus more our dominant mode of transport for the necessities, right? Food, calories, shelter, sex, safety, et cetera, to propagate as a species was about energy conservation. And then you have power attenu attenuation, right? Which is that D cell work where the body comes down, loads the tendon, and then the muscle stops the body and decelerates it. So when we think about that, it's like, yeah, the hill sprints work great because it's a constant power application activity throughout the distance runners, um, you know, diet. And that's the thing, like Charlie Francis always said, right, was like everything's in the Steve has said there, everything's there. It's just the volume and proportion of focus is a little different. And when we think about it in those terms, it becomes very simple to see what we mean by variety. And variety is sometimes mis a little and diversity is a little confused, right? With block training, there's an emphasis on a certain variable or certain couple variables, but maintenance in other areas and retention in other areas. And this is where as coaches, we got to get really uh, comfortable with the training residuals of things because you have the acute, the intermediate, and then long-term residuals. And when you're in the residual phase, the typical rule of thumb that the science demonstrates, whether it be in endurance work or whether it be in strength power work is about, you know, two thirds of, um, you know, the normal stress volume. So it's not stressful. It's just retentive, right? So whatever your normal volume is of something that you've built a, a, a tolerance to, go two thirds of that. And it's not hard to see why, okay, linear transition from marathon style training every day to one, two hour long run, you know, once a week fall on, you know, on the heels of track intervals six days a week because <laughs> he was just putting that that quality or capacity in retentive mode because they're trying to amplify another thing and as a coach if we don't have the flexibility in uh, preparing people and getting them ready it's very unlikely our athletes will have it too yeah no i mean it's it's it really is about developing athletes who can be adaptive and that starts with the coach and i think we've talked a lot about the physiological adaptation but it also includes a coach who is being like implore psychological adaptation and fle flexibility as well what do i mean by that being open to listen being open to change being open to sitting there and being like, okay, yeah, you know, we could try something different or like that's something that I'll consider you and not being the coach who sits there and shuts down and is like, you know, I know what I'm doing. You know, this is the way, this is the path, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes, you know, you got to stay firm on what you're doing, of course, but like you handle that like an adult and explain it. You don't go to the like, this is this your team? This is... Are you the coach? I don't think so. Um, because what you've done there is just shut down. You've you've closed things off, right? You're not promoting flexibility. You're promoting this is the way, follow me or get off the, you know, get off the bus. Yeah, that autocratic and, approach is very, um, unfortunately, too common, but also very seductive as well for the, yeah. you know, the autocrat as well as for the followers. It, you know, I think it's seductive because it's the cheap and easy way. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's it, requires, like it, doesn't, it requires, doesn't require a whole lot of thinking. No, it's no thinking. Just tell me what no to do. Work. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. <laughs> yep, exactly. No thinking, no work. 
like you're essentially saying you, like you should follow me i should have your power and control because i said so because this is the title instead of having to do the work to foster buy-in earning like leadership and regard and all those good things right so I, I think, again, as a coach, you have to ask yourself, well, am I open? Am I leading in a flexible and adaptable way? And then the other part of that is, too, is as a coach, you send the message to the athlete on how flexible and adaptable and diverse, you know, sense of meaning they should have. Are you preaching that running is the only thing that matters, right? Are you telling the, miles, 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 load, 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 right? Are you telling your kids that like they this is this is the sport that like will define everything, knowing that this kid probably won't go off to running college and almost certainly won't go off to make any money or living off of this stuff? And I'm not saying like that to minimize like, oh, running should be. I'm just saying that often what happens as coaches is we build things up um, and make them almost to like an inappropriate level because we want to win. We care about their performance. They care about their performance, et cetera. But that sort of mindset often like leads to a, a not only a fragile place, but a, a deep, dark place where people are willing to you know, push boundaries, not even in terms of like rules of sports, but like the mindset of singular identity around something often is what pushes athletes to uh, perfectionism or like even things like eating disorders, because you're willing to do whatever it takes to satisfy this singular pursuit that defines who you are. And it's okay to try and fail. And I think sometimes that is the, uh, you know, difficulty in this modern era is we only see professional athletes or professional runners going out when they're like absolutely prepared, ready, because, you know, they can't fail for a variety of reasons, or you have professional programs, um, you know, and outfits that say, we're only going to show up when we're hundred percent ready. We're, and we're going to work really hard in practice and practices will be harder than our races, so to speak, blah, blah, blah. But it's okay to fail. It's okay to go out and try something new. Like with the high school runners I'm working with this week, they were sprinters, right? And I said, okay, this week, you guys are sprinters at the meet because it was our last little league meet. You know, they've been running their event, practicing tactical execution, different riding ways, but to keep running them in the 15 and three over and over and over again, or even just in the eight over and over and over again, it gets kind of trite in, you know, a 12 meet season. So this, you know, this week they were like, all right, this league meet, you guys are 400 meter runners. And then we're going to run an open eight, but we're going to do it like this. We're going to run the open eight in the first 600 at your 1500 meter pace, goal pace. And then the last 200, I want to see you flying, right? And just all out max sprint. You got it. And it was so fun for the athletes to do that because they, you know, you know, we gave them kind of like goal times to run the last 200. Like my top girl is like, okay, we want you to run 32. JV boys, it's like, let's try to get as close to 30 and break 30 as possible. The varsity boys, it was like 27, 26. And their global time was quote unquote slow. And what ended up happening was a, another competitor who was running the eight in more of the standard way you run the 800, right? all out from the gun, you know, as minimum of a positive split as possible, jumped out way ahead. And, but they all had someone to, you know, catch or have an eye on in their race. And then as they came around, their peers were hooping and hollering and yelling them and giving them this energy. And everyone, you know, afterwards just like, whoa, those distance runners were flying in the 800. Wow, that's crazy. Grant, they'd just done open four, which all of them PR'd in, um, you know, about, 15 minutes before. So it's a kind of a tough workout scenario, right? But we framed it because it was teaching, especially the newcomers, as well as the, um, you know, uh, uh, upperclassmen and women that no matter what you guys are, you know, have a kick. And that's my theme with them is trust your strength. And the strength is your speed because we have practiced wickets. We've done all this type of work. And the fact they were able to 
try something new and explore, even though their 800 meter time, if you look at their ranking or whatever, was not a close to a PR, was actually a lot, quote unquote, slower than quote unquote normal. They got a lot of value out of that experience. And so it looks like if you are just a linear um, consumer of their, um, you know, athletic.net ranking or whatever, that they got slower. But we're trying something new, exploring this ability to like, what is it, you know, the ability to kick and giving them very concrete objectives to do it. Because, I, you know, that's also the other thing as a coach is the check-in, right? You got to ask them a question and see what the response is and then guide or affirm or reshape the um, response and behavior appropriately. So like I would always, I'd ask them before the open four, okay, what is, you know, what's your plan? What's your model? What are you going to think about and do the last 100 of the 400 when you're fatiguing? And they would give me some very vague answer. Oh, I'm going to just dig deep and push hard. I go, that's awesome. That's great. Yes, we want to do that. But let's focus on this mechanical thing that's actually going to help maintain kind of your velocity as you're fatiguing. Let's really get concrete and specific about it. And, you know, with that uh, coaching and that redirection, and of course, also still dig deep and push hard, but they're able to have actual tools to help them overcome the fatigue and um, tying up, quote unquote, so to speak, that happens in the forehand to have a successful outing, right? And actually accomplish some something that was more concrete. Versus just push, go. And you hear that all the time. And, you know, while that's, you know, the value of that is important from an emotional standpoint of encouragement, it's actually a vague concept that doesn't do anything. So being diverse and flexible and being able to pivot also means you do have concrete tools at your disposal after you ask the athlete what it is they're going to do. And or my favorite question to ask now in a season is, at the beginning of a week is like, okay, hey, what do you think you need? What do you think you need right now to get better? What do you, you know, what area do you think you need to be addressed this week in training or practice to kind of, you know, help help your development? And people will tell you, right? And it might not just, it might be, I need more rest. It might be, I need more encouragement. It might be, oh, I need, you know, to do better on this, um, you know, the sprint work day or the wickets or whatever. That I think is really important as coaches to get away from the control and direct autocratic style, asking, being flexible enough to ask the athlete, what do you need? What do you feel like you need for this week to get you a little bit better? Yeah, I I think, you know, I think too often we treat every race as the test. Yeah. And some of them are just quizzes. Yes. And, and and that's the key, you know, um, if every race is a test, it's the same problem that we have in, in schooling. Then it's like, we're always trying to teach towards the test, train towards the test. And I think sometimes we have to see, and if the research and actually academics back this up, quizzing is a way to enhance learning and, and development, right? Um, same goes with athletics. You can diversify how you race or you respond to it by using races as different manners and different expectations and and different tactics and all that good stuff. So I would do this often and um, with certain people in I would give them specific instructions for how to race when we're trying to develop something, right? So with one athlete, I might say, hey, you know, during your your 6K cross-country race, I want you to be in the lead pack in the first mile. Like, you need to get out. Like, get the hell out. (laughs) What happens after that? I don't really care. Like, you know, we'll see. And I would tell them, like, I, I don't really care. But, like, for this athlete... They needed to like we were going to work on getting out and getting used to it because they were particularly bad at it. And they were really good at settling back and like working their way through the pack. And that's a great skill to have. But in order to make that next breakthrough, especially at some of the higher level competitions, they needed to be used to getting out because 
it's a lot harder to work your way through a pack. So they needed to expand your skill set. Same thing when we look at the 800. I used to love doing this stuff is that um, there's a time to run it with perfection, meaning, you know, go out. Your first lap should be about two seconds faster than you hope your second lap is going to be. So goal time, figure that out, blah, blah, blah. But there's other times where I'm like, you know what? Like, you've got to work on something different. So go out and last. Work through things. Like, work your way up. Like, learn how to do this. And you give specific instructions. And sometimes I'd be like, you know, first lap, no faster than 56. If it's faster than 56, you failed. (laughs) Right? Because I want to see what they do on the second lap. I want to see how they close or whatever have you. So you can use races as quizzes. And sometimes what I would love to do is is do it on the back end of, of maybe a double, right? So you run, I don't know, whatever. You run a mile first and then you come back in the 800 or vice versa. Well, that second race is often an opportunity. Like... What are we going to work on? Don't just, hey, go run hard out there. What's what's the plan? You know, for some, I would, you know, I, I remember telling athletes, you're going to sit. You're not going to lead a single thing until the last 400 meters. And I want you to see what you can do, right? For someone who's used to front running and, and doing all that stuff, like get comfortable in the pack. So you have all these opportunities to work on stuff. And the the point is, not every race is the test where you say, it's either like go for a PR or you don't, you know, go for a PR or you're you're done. You know, that it it can't work. And you know, I would do this with the highest level athletes. I remember with Brian Barraza his senior year, like there were steeples where I remember, you know, even at the conference meet, he's like, Well, should I just you know, there was another uh, pretty good competitor in there and it would be him and Brian and be like, well, should I just go lead and, you know, win this thing? And I'm like, no, what we're going to do is you're just going to, you can be in the front if you want, but like, if it goes slow, I want you to go slow. <laughs> and then we've got to, we've got to work on winding it up the last thousand because I already, I was like, you know, you already ran 833 or something by yourself just leading from the gun. I know you have that capability. So let's work on this other capability, which is like last thousand meters, just turn the screw because inevitably in some prelim, you're going to have to be able to do this to get to the final where, yeah, you might. And he did like just go which is your comfort zone, but you've got to have something, another tool in the toolbox. Hmm. Yeah. That working it out is really important. Like in comedy, right? Comedians, stand-up comedians, they'll play like the small clubs. And these would be like, you know, big names that we all know, right? Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, etc. They'll play these small clubs and they will bomb. They will stink up the joint, bad jokes. Cause they're trying to work out the material to see what, you know, jokes work. We've kind of lost that in this day and age, unfortunately, with the direction a lot of professional groups and even collegiate groups or collegiate programs and sometimes high school programs, right? We have gone because we feel like we can't work it out. And what I mean by work it out is like you show up, you're still training, you're not peaked, you're not ready. Like there's not going to be a Bravo, like as you said, Steve, you know, phenomenal PR race, but you're working on a specific component in the race setting. And if we think it's solely just a physiological puzzle to solve and that we got to make our practices hard, you know, or harder than our races, the uncertainty on race day by having variable competitors who you don't know and who are might be competing at full bore um, to influence your decision making and stimulus is really important. And unfortunately, if you just work it out in practice, it's not as deep or as rich of a learning. And this is where... You know, I remind, like, say, the athletes I work with, I go, if I was a teacher at the school, my, here's, here's how I'd grade you guys. 90% of the grade would be on the final exam, and the other 10% of the grade would be on attendance to class and attendance of the number of quizzes you took. Whether you bombed the quiz or not, I don't care. I just care that you took the quiz, right? So you got to 
and they go, they look at me, Oh, that's so much pressure. I go, but that's life, man. Like, because this idea that every race needs to be a PR to give validity to your training or validity to the athlete, you know, is a very, again, seductive uh, way to go, go down. But I think it ends up creating more uh, higher fragility, right. And less flexibility in the athlete versus if we say, okay, we're going to work it out. And by working it out, you give them a different look at a different moment in the race setting to hopefully build this fluency about how to execute a race in a variety of different circumstances or a general execution strategy. That's why for the high school athletes, I divide their races into four segments. So we can specifically talk about this segment or that segment or segment or the penultimate segment or the final segment. And we can start to have really concrete dialogues about how we need where what segments they need to upgrade or where they feel like they have mental blocks or you know they're, they're not stretching outside their comfort zone and by doing that we're able to build the scaffolding to help build a bridge so they feel like at the end of the season in May you know when they have districts and state that they are as completely prepared not just physically but also emotionally and psychologically to handle a variety of different racing situations as they crop up but if you're only, um, you know, racing situation that you have comfort in is to go out even pace hard from the gun and run for a PR every time, but then you have extreme weather conditions that might throw you off guard. Now, all of a sudden you've created this frustration fragility athlete that they feel upset, shortchanged or pissed off because, well, we played the let's get a PR game every meet and I didn't get a PR. What's up? Yeah, you know, the other thing that comes to mind there is, you know, one of the things that I'd always see as a college coach, you know, getting in high schoolers is every high schooler is pretty good that you're recruiting coming to college, right? They were the best on their team or one of the best in their area, et cetera, et cetera. And they get into college and they really suck at running in packs, right? And this is like, this is one of the things that I would often do is like, all right, we got to learn how to run in a pack. And, and I don't mean just like that is demeaning, but there's a difference between someone who is comfortable in a pack and someone who is running in the pack and you can see they're on high alert. They're not comfortable. You know, they're a little freaking out. And this is where I think, again, it's like, well, there's another skill set for you because you're, no matter how good you are get, you're going to have to be comfortable, like, in the middle of a pack, stuff between people, at the back of the pack, all sorts of stuff. And you've just got in the front, like, you've got to figure out how to get comfortable with it. And I think in this this podcast, this conversation, what we've talked about is that this performance flexibility is having all these different paths, all these different avenues from a psychological standpoint, from a physiological standpoint, from a like identity standpoint, is if you can diversify those, it makes you a little bit, it makes you anti-fragile, right? Because like you're always going to have somewhere to go. You're always going to be like, okay, if this didn't work out, I can try this over this here. I have this other path. You're going to have at least some degree of comfort regardless of how the race unfolds. And I think as a coach, that's one of the best things that we can do is hand over that and give and develop that diversity and that performance flexibility so that we aren't so narrow and locked in that you know, if it doesn't go our way, we spiral and freak out. And even I'd say, you know, on top of the anti-fragile is thinking about the difference between that and resiliency, right? Resiliency is being able to be malleable, but then bounce back to your default state or default condition, right? You can embrace that. Like, um, you know, skyscrapers are resilient. They can incur a certain degree of wind, but still maintain the integrity of their shape. Anti-fragile is the ability to evolve, the ability to micro pivot and change and grow. And that's really the key to this flex, the concept of developing flexibility is being able to graduate people and their experience and who they are and how they identify as a competitor 
as a runner, as a member of the team, as a person, self-identity as an individual, and graduate that to a different chapter. So a lot of times you might get that athlete who's PR obsessed and focused, but then how do you graduate and make them more robust and anti-fragile of a competitor so that they can have a lot of value and an excitement and joy out of running a race really well executed and competing, even if they didn't get the PR. And that's, you know, to me, that's the most important thing, especially seeing it as coming back to the high school level and coaching this year is getting them excited to um, and happy and satisfied with having executed a race strategy well, even if we didn't get a win or a PR, even if it didn't go on. It, you know, for some of my more competitive kids, they're very, very good about, you know, uh, obliging me. And they're kind of pissed off. Like, yeah, I know I could have won that 800 meter race coach. Had I been able to go out and run at 800 meter pace, you know, the whole way through, but I know, but you know what, you have bigger fish to fry in the championship portion of the season. It's important. We have these gaps shorn up now so that when it really counts, when it really matters, when the lights are on. And as Dan John says, can you go, you can go. <laughs> and because that's going to be the more lasting memory. It's the, the higher risk, higher reward, but that's always how I've played the game. You know, I tell the athletes, I'm a tournament coach. I coach for tournaments. It's a tournament, which is essentially a championship race. We're in, right? March Madness is a tournament. The NBA playoffs, tournaments. You know, if I was coaching tennis, I'd be all in on like Wimbledon or, you know, US Open or whatever, because it's the tournaments that matter. And sometimes we forget the regular season, which is the practice or the quizzes, those are preparing us for the tournament. But every season, every sport eventually goes to tournament style competition. And I decided it was a lot more fun to play the game and prepare people for tournament style competition than it was just for show up and have a random performance that people go, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yes, I think there's, yes. It's, and there's a little, there's like freedom in that, right? And it's like learning how to like, deal with not winning and losing and all that stuff, even if it's intentional, I think that's important. Like that makes you again, flexible and adaptable. So, you know, if coaches take anything away from this, this conversation, it's often success pushes us to narrow, <laughs> right? right? Cause it, it feels good when we say, Hey, this is what works. This is how we do it. Like this gives me results most of the time, etc. But if we narrow too far, we lock ourselves in, which ultimately limits our performance over the long haul. And, yeah, and our as, health and happiness and all that good stuff. Right. And as a coach, too, we see this, Steve and I always talk about offline, like sometimes as coaches, we think there's a only upward trajectory that you're a better coach as you coach faster, more high-performing, more famous runners. And having been on this roller coaster ourselves, you know, we understand it's not the case. Like to have the flexibility to be able to pivot back and coach high school or gen pop or master's runners after having coached people at a, you know, higher achieving, higher performing level doesn't mean you're a worse or, you know, uh, you know, failing coach by no means. Oh my gosh, no. It just means you have, truly have this fluency to coach the entire spectrum. And I mean, you've seen this with like people like Vern Gambetta, right? Who's winning coached at the highest heights of the professional level, but then pivoted all the way back and went back to the, you know, youth club level to consult and help coach and oscillates back and forth. Like as coaches, we are teachers and our job as teachers, I think is to have the whole spectrum of ability to teach at any stage in development of an athlete, and any athlete or any person at whatever stage of development they're at, right? So you can pick up and start coaching a novice from scratch who's 35, never ran, step in their life, but has goals and ambitions of breaking four hours for the marathon and getting them to that point and telling them, okay, it's going to be a long journey. Here's what it's going to take, blah, 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 blah. Or recruiting a kid who might have ran, you know, 410 in the mile in high school and saying, okay, hey, we're going to graduate you to be able to be a sub four minute miler who's competitive at the collegiate level and, you know, play the game to, you know, be an All-American. 
it's the like I said, the same flexibility has to lie with us as coaches first before you know we can ensure that we can gift that to our athletes. Hundred percent. And you know one of the best ways you can get more flexible, John. Stephen, tell me, I'm unaware. You spend time in the the running scholar clubhouse. Oh yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you not only get courses that give you flexibility because we cover everybody um, and everything from high intensity coaches to run long and slow and everything in between, but we have a diversity of coaches who come together, dialogue, disagree, and no one bites your head off or calls you stupid. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it truly is robust discussions. How I start my day every day during the week is about the first hour, I'm just cruising the clubhouse, you know, talking to other scholars, you know, in direct messages, posting things, responding to things, just or just reading things and going, man, smart cookies up in here. So yeah, it's a great way to start my day. It's Far better than the other we shall not name free message boards that deviate towards linear thinking, trolling, and unfortunately shallow dialogue. This is deep, juicy, and actually gets you better, helps you solve problems, and have a community of 250 other scholars in your corner to like, you know, leverage to help level up not only yourself as a practitioner, but also your athletes. That's right. So join on in if you want to have a diverse and flexible mindset and coaching style. Join the party. So thank you for listening and uh, check out the Running Scholar program. And until next time, everybody, have fun coaching.